Um, I'm so thankful to, to still be in this important passage this morning, Cornelius' conversion. Uh, but before we even get to that, I, I wanted to share a word with you. Um, I want you to know before I even share that, I am so, I'm so glad to be a pastor here, your pastor. And uh, as a part of being your pastor um, in, a, in a congregational church, uh, I think it's important um, that I take a moment for this. Uh, I, uh, just more than a week ago, uh, I came across to people here as uh, not understanding um, where they were at and, uh, and, and really came across as not, not caring and being pushy, uh, unkind, and rude would really would sum it up. And uh, that is not character that reflects um, pastors in 1 Timothy 3. And uh, I am glad to confess to you that, that was wrong behavior. And I don't want to act like that. And uh, I needed to share that with you. I've, I've asked for forgiveness, but I want to share that with you as a church uh, so that you know where I'm at. Uh, that doesn't reflect Jesus or the gospel. And, and I am so happy to say uh, I'm, I want to abandon that and be called out uh, for that uh, behavior. So, and my question would be uh, for you, and knowing that, is uh, can, I, can I start again <laughs> as a pastor? Can I learn from that and grow from it and, uh, and uh, still be received by you? Uh, that's my question. So, uh, I love you guys, and I thank you for, for listening to that and the community that we are holding our pastors accountable. Um, I also, I, I want to, it leads me to a, a second part. I, I had a number of questions, and so I wanted to, I want to hopefully bring some more clarity in what I meant by last week, and also some clarity in what I didn't mean. And, and so we, we're going to circle back to some topics from last week. I think this uh, will be good. And so just in humility, I want to explain some things. Um, that, that hopefully will put minds at ease and also uh, will help us know how to move forward together. So I want to be clear. I brought up the example of church membership and rightly so um, have had a question. How did you get from Acts chapter 10 through eleven eighteen to church membership? Like wh- wh- where does that even play in? Um, because we, we believe in exposition, expositional preaching and in expository messages, that message had better come from the text. So that theology, what we learn about God, what we learn about the gospel, what we learn about the church, it had better come from the passage and not from the pastor's own imagination. <laughs> All right? So it's legitimate to ask that question, say, hey, where, where was that? And I, I made a statement um, about church membership, and I, I didn't want to conflate the two ideas of baptism and, and uh, church membership, but I did, I did want to say there are two ways that our church corporately affirms someone's faith, and uh, one of them is baptism. We only baptize people who are Christians. We don't. That's our practice as a church is someone comes to faith, and we need to be faithful, like Peter was in this passage, to baptize them, and Church membership is another example 
uh, where we only bring people into membership who are Christians. Now, what I'm not saying in that is that baptism is on the same level as church membership. I'm not saying that. What I was saying was that they are similar in the sense that in our church's practice, we only do those things to people who are Christians. And that's not true across the board for churches. And so I thought that it it would be honest for us to share, hey, this is what we practice as a church. There are a few other views about church membership, and I want to share those. So um, I would put ours kind of in the middle of the spectrum, but there's one on one side, one on one side of the spectrum, and it's this. It's called open membership, open membership. Um, Open membership is this idea. You do not need to follow Jesus in baptism to be a member of our church, And you do not have to affirm the Christian faith to be a member of our church. That's what's what's called um, open membership. Uh, We don't practice that, uh, but it is how some churches practice membership. I'll just um, most of those churches do not believe in the authority of God's word, and most of those churches do not last for very long. Because when you throw the authority of God's word out, then Gabe or whoever's the pastor can only be inspirational for so long, detached from the gospel, which is credible because of the Bible and not because of Gabe's opinion, right? It can only be inspirational for so long before those churches fall apart for lack of authenticity, the authority of God's word. On the other side of the spectrum, uh, some churches practice no organized, no formal um, structure for church membership, right? I've been a part of some of those churches, Heather and I, New Life Community Church in Chicago. We helped plant a church, and there was, there was no church membership. And uh, it stands out in my mind as, as a great example. Um, no local church membership which essentially means we're not going to distinguish in any formal or structural way between those that belong to this local church and those that don't, okay? And that's just another practice, another practice. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying, hey, that is um, a, a lot of churches today. We, however, practice church membership, which just means we want people who are Christians to be members. And, and you can agree to disagree with me on that. I, I say that, and I want to explain that and be clear about it, not to throw shade on anyone. I'm not pointing anyone out. I just want to help you understand what kind of a church that we are. Um, another part of that is, you know, hey, where do you get to, where do you get um, what you're talking about out of this passage? Um, because that is really, that really should be the biggest thing. Not what does Gabe think about membership or what do you think about membership, but what does the Bible Uh, talk about it, or does it talk about uh, church membership? And and, and I want to say this, that um, not me, but Richard Longenecker, and I just want to highlight, I don't, when I preach, these ideas are not original with me. When I quote someone word for word, I need to give you the quote, but I try to paraphrase uh, the ideas that I'm wrestling with all week Uh, because I want messages to not feel like I'm just quoting one person after another after another. But this is Richard Richard Longenecker, uh, who's maybe my favorite, um, favorite um, extensive commentator on the book of Acts. And and he says this, he says this, 
And this is why I brought up the idea of receiving someone into membership as affirming their faith. He says this, Cornelius' conversion was important to Luke in this story, this particular story, not only because the gospel advances, which is a big point we've been making, not the, not the first week, but what's unique about his story, he says, not only because of the gospel advances, but also because of the response of the believers in Jerusalem to it. The church is affirming Cornelius' conversion and that it matters. So you have an idea that's brought up in Acts chapter 10 that Richard Longenecker helped me see that one of the reasons why Cornelius' conversion is so important is not just because the gospel saves Gentiles, but also because we, we essentially get Peter repeating the story in Acts chapter 11, repeating, which I'll just tell you, there are 15 years of church history between Acts chapter 1, wait, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 11. There's 15 years of church history. Sometimes we think like this is a few months of the church, and that's not true at all. About 15 years and so Luke is a church historian writing for a specific purpose when he spends a chapter and a half on an episode and even rehashes the important details of Peter of Peter's of Cornelius's conversion that he has a specific purpose that he's making a point that when Peter went back to Jerusalem that he had to give an answer and Richard Longenecker points out it is because the gospel is advancing to Gentiles, but it is going to have consequences for how the church receives into its community these people. And I'll tell you what, this is just the opening of that question. Because Acts chapter 15, so four more chapters, maybe 2024, we'll get there, right? Four more chapters, we're going to have the Jerusalem Council where the question is twofold. It's going to be, can someone like Cornelius become a Christian and not be a practicing Jewish person? That's the question. And then the second follow-up question is, how can this church, which has been people who practice the Jewish faith and come to know Jesus entirely up to this point, how can you begin adding in these pagan Gentiles who begin following Jesus? How can they enter into the fellowship with people who are Jewish Christians? How are they going to get along? How are they going to be in one fellowship in one local body? Or do we need to divide them out according to affinity? That's going to be a question that's going to come up in the Jerusalem Council. But Luke opens it up right here. And so when you have... When you have the affirmative word of the leadership in Jerusalem that at first criticize, but then come back to affirm this statement that everyone who believes in the name of Jesus is forgiven. Everyone. That there's an emphasis on everyone. These people that we, we used to not associate with that would make us unclean. And so that's in the text where, where I'm getting that. Now, if you hold a different biblical conviction about church membership, I don't want you to think that, that I'm pushing you out or, or any of that. I want you to know that I love you, I respect you, 
And we can agree to disagree on this issue. This is not a central doctrine of our church, not by a long shot. Now, the second thing I want to clarify is this. And and again, similar question, but Gabe, why did you bring up the applications that you did? That was a question. You know, are are you being mean in some of the things that you said? I I had some very specific applications. And and some some folks um, asked me why. You know, why why those? Um, And I just want to share that as I saw the cultural divide being bridged, what God was doing revealed something about God, revealed something about his gospel, and it challenged something about his church. God shows no partiality. But what do we see in Peter? That Peter showed partiality. He did. You get the sense in the story, right? That Peter says, Apart from this vision, which I protested the vision, right? You know, God's giving this vision of you can eat the clean and the unclean animals. And Peter's there protesting, no, Lord, no. I've lived my life differently up to this point. Don't make me. And then the Holy Spirit makes it even firmer. And and as Cornelius' servants and his one soldier Extend the invitation to him. Come, come to Cornelius. He, he's honored by the Jews. He's a God-fearer. He prays. He gives alms. Come, he's a good person. Come to him. We know that Peter would have said no. How do we know that? Because he confesses it in chapter 11. I would have said no. I would have kept my distance. I would have been guarded. I wouldn't have associated with Cornelius, except that the Holy Spirit made it clear and, and through Peter's protest said, no, go, go. And the fact, and we'll, we'll bring up this tension again, but the fact that he gets flack, he gets criticism from the Jerusalem church for what he does following the Holy Spirit, I mean, it just shows that there was a guard, there was an association that Peter made that a lot of people thought he shouldn't have. You, you should have just ignored Cornelius' request. You should, you should have kept your distance. You're unclean now. You're less qualified to be a leader. You're, I mean, imagine the criticism that he received. Now, I wasn't trying to be mean, but I did want to bring up some specific things and specific words. And number, number one was this. <laughs> number one was this. Ways that we can make feel, people feel like they don't belong, that we shouldn't. And one of this is, is hearing the words which I've heard in this church. And, and I want to say this gently and humbly, that we as a church can, can own this, even if it wasn't your mouth, even if it wasn't my mouth. I can own this. Now, this is a challenge that we face. That I, I, I've heard these words. <laughs> and we can laugh at it too. Which I'm going to laugh at it. Someone is sitting in my seat. I mean, I love to laugh at that. I love to laugh at it. 
but have heard it. I want to stop hearing it. I don't even have an assigned seat. Heather is the only one who has an assigned seat. I tell her, front row, Heather, that it, if no one else wants to sit there, we're sitting there. She's the only one with an assigned seat, right? And she really doesn't. No one's challenged you for Waiting for someone, and you're welcome to sit on that row as well. Welcome to sit on that row. I remember, okay, so I grew up in church, but I remember one Sunday, uh, the pastor and his family, they always sat in the front row. And I'm not trying to be like this pastor, but um, I, re- <laughs> I sat like two or three rows behind them with my family. And I remember walking into church and we were about to, you know, take the spot that our family always sat. And I decided, I'm not going to sit there. I'm going to go sit in their seats. <laughs> I'm going to take their spot. And I went up and I did that. I remember my mom calling me back, Gabe, no, don't do that. I was like, I was like five, four or five, right? Just being a group. And I want to sit in their seat. Like it was their seat. Yeah, same spot every time. But the truth is that comments like that say, you don't belong. This is my spot. I belong here. You don't belong. Right? And we can laugh at it. We can laugh at it. I shared the positive example of Highlands Ranch and folks that were sitting in some nice seats and, and when they saw some visitors come in midway through the service, they got up and they ushered them to their seats and said, hey, sit here. My friends sat in their seats and, and it was explicitly welcoming. When we say someone's sitting in my seat, it's saying they're not welcome in my seat. They're not welcome in this place. I think positively, there's a positive example that I thought of in our church. I, Roger's done a phenomenal job of leading people. To, how can we be welcoming during a worship service? What are things that we can do or not do? Instead of just doing what we're comfortable with, what we just naturally do. What are the habits that we can do to invite someone, hey, come sit with me. Or going to sit with somebody. Just for the fact that I want to make them feel included. Like they belong. It's been so good. I hope, like, I hope you feel energized to keep doing that, Roger. May, may your tribe increase. <laughs> we want to do things that welcome people. So that's why I gave a specific example that I did. Another one would be hearing the words, which I've heard, where someone's wanting to sit with friends in a row and instead, they get the response, there isn't a seat here for you. We sent a mom and her daughter packing in December with those words. I'm not making those words up. Now, I'm not being mean. It does upset me because it does not reflect God. He is not partial. He is impartial. It doesn't represent his gospel. It doesn't represent his church. There's no room for you with our friends. You don't belong here, is what I hear in that. And that breaks my heart. So I brought up the specific examples. I asked some folks in the church, I said, hey, what are other ways? I mean, those are like, those are like explicit, right? Right? 
There isn't room for you here. You're sitting in my seat. Those are explicit ways that we can say you don't belong. But then I asked, hey, what are, what are the behaviors? I asked some folks in our church, what are the behaviors that say, I, I don't want to be a part of a church that you're a part of, or you don't belong in my circle, or I'm not going to associate with you? Because that's the idea here of Peter. He would have said no to an invitation from Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Wow, he eats pork. The way he dresses, he never goes to the temple. He, you know, he's probably not clean. He might not bathe the way that I do. Peter would have said no, and he had the Old Testament on his side, Old Testament law. But then, but then he heard the word, God is impartial, and so should you be. And I made the connection to we can pick and choose our, our own community within the church. And it's not bad to have good and deep friendships. But on Sunday morning, when we set up very clear boundaries that you don't belong in this social circle, and there's really no on-ramp to join that circle, there really isn't the invitation. I asked what those behaviors were, and that's where I went into, you know, the circle that doesn't open to you, and when people don't make eye contact with you, and when you say hi to them or how they're doing, they do not stop, they walk by. I wasn't trying to pick on anyone. That is what people told me. When I don't want to associate, or when people don't want to associate with me, this is what I hear. And I thought it was right on point, and so I totally just plagiarized what they said. I was not picking on any one person. I just wanted to, to share with us the insights that they had because it made me think, who am I doing these things to, intentionally or unintentionally? And I had some revelations this week, and that was a part of my confession. How was I coming across to people? Oh, man, it's, it's not how I wanted to in the end. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. If you're in my boat where, where I've got something to confess, I want to encourage you with this. We can confess it because Jesus died for us. And even though it doesn't feel very sanitized, it is a good thing in Christian community when we confess those sins and say, I want to turn from that. I can be an introvert in the church, but I don't want to be a jerk in the church. We can confess this, and I want to assure you that you are forgiven by Jesus. You are. I'm not just saying that. That everyone who believes on the name will be forgiven, will be given life. Okay, so right here, right here in the story, I just want to bring up a couple things. We're going to come back to this. Because there's so much in this story. In fact, if you look at the structure of Acts, Acts chapter 10 and 11 opens up the ends of the earth. The Gentiles, these other nations are coming to faith in Jesus. This, this Messiah who's restoring Israel, the Israelite king, is bringing in people to benefit from promises that were given to Israel. Yes, right here. And did it ever rock the boat? It does. Is it going to rock the boat again? Yes. Will it continue to rock the boat? Of course. 
Acts 15 is when we get to the very center of it. If you look at the structure of Acts, uh, 28 chapters, 15 is right smack dab in the middle. And it is the heart, it is the heart of Luke's message about fulfilling Jesus' word in Acts 1, you, 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there were theological issues and there were community practices that had to change in order for the ends of the earth to come to worship Jesus. Acts 2.21, where Peter quotes Joel in his message, and he said, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They didn't know what everyone meant in chapter 2. But by chapter 11, we're beginning to get an idea. And it's also making them uncomfortable. And by Acts 15... We're going to come to the point of there is so much tension that there has to be an official policy sent out. This is a big issue about belonging in the church, what that means, what that looks like. And it's legitimate for churches to talk about this is how we practice, this is what we practice. And it's legitimate to disagree with that and say, hey, I've got biblical reasons for why I, I practice something differently. And we want you to be biblical. We want you to follow Jesus more than anything. Might challenge that a little bit sometimes. We still love you. We don't love you less. And so here are a few ways. I I asked this question. Man, this is so mixed up. This is so mixed up, but hang with me here. How did Peter know what to do, what choice to make? Because trust me, he did not just do what felt good. He did what was outside of his box, what was uncomfortable. Why did he make that decision? And and I'm going to pause it. It's because the word of God is sufficient to lead us in our faith and practice. And Peter received an explicit word, but it was enough. There were so many questions. How does this work itself out? But it was enough. Peter, everyone who believes... Even Cornelius, go tell Cornelius. I'm going to show you he's a Christian. It's going to be non-ignorable that he's a Christian as the Spirit descends on Cornelius and his household. And so for us, in our statement of faith, it says this, that the Scriptures are three things. They are true, authoritative, and sufficient. Sufficient. That God's word was sufficient for Peter. Even when he didn't understand, he still obeyed. He still said, yes, Lord. He still followed through with the things that were so utterly uncomfortable with him. So so we explain, and this is in our membership covenant, a couple ways that we practice that. Our membership covenant says this, we covenant to seek God's will, his desire for our church community to the best of our ability as we study the scriptures and follow the spirit. That we are still working this out. And as you look at the early church, we see in Peter, he's still working it out. The different congregations in the temple We're still working it out. And for us, 
leads to another application, our covenant membership. I covenant to submit to the authority of Scripture as the final arbiter on all issues. It's so important. Because Peter has some incredible experiences, but he interprets his experiences, what he's seen with his eyes, he interprets them through Scripture. So his experience would be like the sign gifts that these Gentiles that don't belong to Israel, aren't practicing the Jewish faith, begin to show. That's his experience. But secondly, he reflects back on words that were shared, that Jesus shared. He reflects on those words, on that doctrine, and he interprets that experience, which also the leaders in Jerusalem reflect on, that everyone who believes in the name of Jesus will be saved. Everyone, absolutely everyone who trusts in Jesus. That it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing, believing the scriptures. That Peter is exemplary in this right here. And so in this major movement in, in church history, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, I want to draw out just a couple of questions for application. You ready for this? What is a major decision that you or you and your family have made? What's a major decision that you and your family have made? And how did Scripture influence it? How did Scripture influence it? Or how did Scripture help you interpret what was going on? My kids just came to know Jesus. The greatest interpreter for me of what is going on inside their soul is is not my special ability to know what's in their heart, but looking at Scripture. What does Scripture say about the gospel and how someone is saved? What does the gospel say about the behavior of a Christian? How did Scripture influence it? A major decision that you've made right here, a huge not ignorable decision is made, and Scripture is used to interpret it. You know, I, I, I had another one. This is a really interesting conversation uh, with somebody. Uh, actually, two conversations, like back-to-back, someone I just met. And it was so interesting. It, it came up. Um, they, were, they were basically approaching me like, like they were a Christian. And so I asked them some questions, and it was friendly conversation. But they... They said, you know, I go to Regis High School, and they offered that up as why they were a Christian. I said, oh, really? That's cool. I said, do you, you know, do you go to church anywhere? And I said, well, yeah, sometimes. I go about once a month, and, and uh, they answered that because I said, well, what makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? That's when they brought up, I go to church about once a month, 12 times a year. That makes me a Christian. And there was a little bit of question in their mind, like, that's what makes me think I'm a Christian, but... I, I don't know. This is a conversation I had on Friday. And so it afforded me the huge opportunity to say, actually, in Mark's gospel, he lets us know what you believe about Jesus' identity makes you a Christian. And that you believe that you needed Jesus to die on the cross for you, like he followed through and did. And that you've made a decision to follow him. Have you made that decision to follow him? You see the clarity that scripture gives in the confusion of, I go to church 12 times a year, and that makes me a Christian. 
That's a works-based righteousness. That's inadequate. Right here, we get a concise look at Mark's gospel. It's what Peter shares with Cornelius. Did you know that John Mark, who followed Peter around on his mission, John Mark's going to come out because he was with some of the other apostles too, that he writes his gospel based off of the apostle Peter's preaching. And, And it matches up so well with what we read here in Acts. What is a major decision you've made, and how did Scripture influence it? Influence. Here's the second question. How do you display that God is impartial in a just coexist world? You get that? Right here in the passage, we see something about the character of God, that he is impartial. He doesn't show partiality in the way that Peter thinks he does. How do you and I, in how we present the gospel, and as the church together, how do we represent that God is impartial? That that he's not saying, you know what, Gabe grew up in a Christian home, so I like him, I'm going to make him a Christian No. God is impartial. But we live in a world that says just coexist. Right? Just get along. We just just want to be united. How do you display that God is impartial in a world that says just coexist? How are those different? Because there's an impartiality that comes from this message of coexist with each other. All faiths, they're the same. But right here in this passage, we hear that God is impartial. And so how do you show that, yeah, he he doesn't make a difference between you because you're a practicing Jew or you're not, or because of the color of your skin or your income or your class in society, which we do. We have our own classes in our society, the people that we associate with and the people that we don't. How do we demonstrate that God is impartial as a church in a society that says, just if you just get along, just coexist. There's no difference between people. There's some tension in that. How do you display that together? I want to read, I think it fits with this. I want to read one, uh, one passage. This is from, just so you know, the, these are the commentaries that I use. I reference them not every, not every week in my study, but this is what I use. I've got one more, Dr. Schnabel, um, on my computer. He's the one that the quote, that God is impartial. That's what he believes this passage is saying. There's another one, Ajith, Ajith, I'm probably butchering his name, Fernando. I like him because he's born and raised in Sri Lanka, the island off of India. Gives a unique cultural perspective. But I think he's spot on. He's been a part of a parachurch ministry that does evangelism discipleship. But at the same time, he's also a pastor and he's a member in his local church. And he's got that accountability. And I appreciate that in a day and age of Ravi Zacharias and where a parachurch ministry can be unaccountable to whoever they want to be unaccountable to. I appreciate him so much. And so for a guy that lives just off the just off the, the coast of India. I love what he has to say here about what we're talking about. So this comes from his commentary on, on our exact passage that we've been in. But he says this. 
And I want you to hear this from him, and I thought maybe, maybe you wouldn't accept if it was from me, but he says this, given the individualism of our age, people place less emphasis on community ministry today. We are often too impatient to involve the Christian community in our ventures. We find it too time-consuming to explain everything to them and to spend hours trying to get their support. And, and I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I feel like that too. Like, like this is difficult. Everyone seems to be so busy and there are so many things to get done in the short time available to us. As a result, we have evolved a structure taken more from the secular big business model where leaders are put at the top of the organizational chart and are given the freedom to lead creatively using others as consultants, but not having to submit to the rest of the body. Leaders that are lone ranger, that are rogue, that don't give an answer to their church. In spiritual accountability for their actions. People have gotten used to this structure, and they usually do not question a leader until some serious problem emerges. If they do not like the leader's philosophy, they can simply go somewhere else. In Acts, by contrast, we find the church grappling with issues until they reached agreement. The community orientation of the church in Acts then provides a huge challenge to the church in the 21st century. The individualism of the society in which we live has influenced our thinking so much that we have jettisoned some of the principles of our community solidarity seen in Acts. It may be possible to get quicker positive results from the individualistic method of ministry, but whether such success is success in God's sight is another matter. God's way of doing ministry is surely the way that involves the rest of the body to which we belong. And we must learn to do our work in God's way, however inefficient it may initially seem. That challenged me. It made me, it made me really rethink some things I've been doing. And it also encouraged me. Sometimes church family life is, is messy. Sometimes there isn't agreement or consensus. But what, what God is teaching me is that I always want to be working out that mess within the church and not standing outside of her. I want you to hold me accountable to that. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's slow. He, he writes, Ageth, he was a part of Youth for Christ, describes parachurch ministry. They could start something here and stop it. They could start something over there and movement, and they could go, and it's it very fluid. He says it reminds him of being on a jet ski, <laughs> right? The twists, the turns, the stop, the go, real fast. I've been on a jet ski with my kids driving, and I know that's exactly what it's like. But that, that it, while a jet ski is fun and it's free, and you can go speak wherever you want and do whatever ministry you want to. 
You can have your target people. You can leave some people out and target just one specific people. No question. You're not the church. You have to reach everybody. Just your target. While that is free, there is, there is a solidarity and a security throughout all of church history of the church, which is more like a cruise ship. A lot of people, it does not turn and weave. It moves in a straight line. You, you do not fall in the water in front of a cruise ship because it is not stopping. It's going to keep going. It's big. Some people would prefer that jet ski, right? It's just easier. I can go wherever I want. But when you are out in the middle of the ocean, I would rather be on a cruise ship than a jet ski. And throughout church history, I have to respect and look at what the church is grappling with and say, it's going to be like that for us. There will be issues that we grapple with. And so submitting to God and, and, and taking the Bible seriously, which I hear from you, and I love that. I want to affirm that, that you want to obey God's word and not any man's word. I love that, that we respect each other, even when we disagree, and that we'd open up the Bible together. I want to encourage you with that. Again, those questions, application questions. What's a major decision? How did Scripture influence that for you? And then how do we show God's impartiality as a church, as community groups, as Bible studies? How do we show God's impartiality in a world that just says coexist? How do we do that? Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're so gracious to us, and I thank you. Cornelius' example is so much like ours. You bring us in... <laughs> As I read the Old Testament, I, I think I don't belong, but to hear the good news of Jesus that I do, Lord, thank you. Lord, that everybody in here that believes on the name of Jesus is made right with you through Jesus' work, not ours. Yet he fulfills everything. God, I pray that your grace would help us to see, Lord, that you... You don't pick and choose based on who we are, that we would belong, but because of what Jesus has done. God, I pray that you'd, you'd humble us in community, that we'd be able to take steps forward. God, that you would help us to thrive, that you'd give us a big view of you and a big view of your church. God, we love you. Help us to walk in this this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray.